Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and today is April the 26th in the year 2020. Welcome to my show. You can go to armchairsurvivalist.com, and you can listen to it there. Uh, Scroll down to any page uh, at armchairsurvivalist.com, and you will see all the different ways. I'm on Pandora. I'm on iHeartRadio. There's all kinds of places I'm on. I don't even know where the hell I am most of the time. But uh, you can also listen to my show on the left-hand side of any of the Armchair Survivalist pages are uh, the little nipper dog listening to the RCA Victor gramophone, and you click there, and that's my archives. And you can listen to any of the shows for the current year there. Don't have a lot of time for just chit-chat, so we're going to have to get into it. See, on my show, I have various categories I cover. One is the economy, and the other is health and food. Then uh, now, unfortunately, it would be also the Wuhan virus. There's uh, Islam, then there's the liberal psychosis, government threat, and Trump. So we're going to get into the economy right now. One of the side effects of everything that's that's happening here is that, uh, and, and this is worldwide, is because people worldwide are basically slitting their own throats and destroying the economies on the planet. Of course, it's their politicians that are telling them to do so, but regardless. And it's causing credit card companies to have problems now. And they know these credit card, MasterCard, Visa, Discover, and all the rest of them know that uh, people out there are not going to be having the natural income that they have uh, been used to for the past uh, 10 years or, or what have you. So they're reevaluating. And don't be don't be surprised when you guys get a letter in the mail from your you know, chase card or whatever card you you use that basically says uh, we have lowered your amount, your limit. So you you no longer have $5,000 limit. You now have $2,500 limit or $1,000 limit or things like that. And if you had a, have a, a line of credit on your value of your house, you can expect that to be either canceled or cut back quite a bit because housing values are down 10% across the board. So there, there's a lot of things happening in the financial world that we are going to be uh, impacted with. So, you know, pay attention. Don't be surprised. Uh, be angry, but don't be surprised. You know, this this bailout that, that uh, both, both the Democrats and Republicans pushed out for businesses, right? So I would venture to say about 60% of the money went to large corporations. Trump didn't realize that. It's kind of like a unintended consequences. And now he's he's uh, demanding that these large corporations, we're talking, we're talking, multi-million dollar corporations that don't need this money but it's good to have right so yeah so he's trying to get it all back when this all pans out you're going to look around and you're going to notice that over half of the department stores that we have in the united states aren't going to be there anymore Uh, so uh, it's happening in the background right now where the large department stores like kohl's and pennies and sears and what's left of kmart if there's anything left anymore are working up uh, bankruptcies so that they can bail without owing anybody any money. And there's a lot of big businesses now, department stores, that are union. There are a lot of debts that are owed union members, especially retirement. So there's going to be some really nasty separations, shall we say, coming soon to a uh, mall near you. Amazon, and this is why I don't, I, I uh, even though I have rec- uh, I've got the uh, requirements down and handled to where I can sell the nutritional products that Survival Enterprises sell. I can sell it on Amazon. I won't do it. 
because after I went through three months of testing and filling out applications and doing all that crap so that I could sell my Infinity brand products on Amazon, I won't sell them on Amazon because what Amazon has been doing, and you ha- you can see this, you can also see it on eBay, but what Amazon's been doing is, say I put a rubber ball on sale for four ninety nine. If I sell a lot of them, Amazon is going to copy the picture, co- copy my my uh, editorial comments, uh, copy how much I sell it for, how I advertise it, and they're going to have it manufactured in China, and they're going to sell it for themselves. Amazon's been doing this. They're scooping up data from its own sellers, duplicating it, finding out which products sell good, and then they're offering them and bypassing all their vendors. Oh, there's a warning on VPN, Virtual Private Network. No matter where you go on the internet, they want you to sign up for some VPN. Well, that's good. Here's a problem. There's a bunch of them out there that says free VPN, free download, free this, free that. Well, that's great, except for the fact that it's this uh, these free apps, these free v- virtual private networks. See, what a VPN is, it bypasses the normal internet, and it doesn't let anyone track you. Like I'm sitting here in Hayden, Idaho. I can do a VPN and go to a go uh, go to a website, and they'll think I'm in Germany, or Italy, or undersea. I mean, you don't know. There's no way that anybody can track you that way. Except what they're finding is that there are so many of these VPN services that are free, like Super VPN. It's uh, hacking you. And what they do is they copy everything that you do, and then they sell it. Or they put uh, they install different Trojan horses on your your computer or your your laptop or your cell phone. And I, when you go to my website armchairsurvivalist.com, you'll see show notes on the left hand side of the page. You'll see uh, you'll see the show notes. You click on that; it'll take you to a page that gives you the the dates of all my shows for the current year. You click on which one you want to research, and it takes you to a page that has my source for everything I talk about. I I'm not like. ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, or any, or even Fox. I don't just talk about crap that I read on the, on the internet. I find source. I don't do any peer reporting. So when I talk about something, I sh- I show you guys where you can go and look at it yourself. And I really think that you do. Anybody on the internet who's even thinking of anonymity needs to go and read this article on. Uh, What's it titled? It's titled, um, Delete This Dangerous VPN App With 100 Million Downloads. When um, the Democrats came out and said, you know, a good idea is to give everybody who's on unemployment $600 a week more. And when I heard that, I mentioned and I said, people are not going to want to go back to work. Nor See, it doesn't matter how much money you, you're making in real life, when you go on unemployment, you're going to get, I don't know, an average about 300 bucks a week. Add 600 to that. So my brother worked for the NRA. He got laid off. So now he's on unemployment with an extra $600. So he's making about 350 a week on unemployment and an extra $600. He's making more than he was making when he was working. And what's happening now is that a lot of these small companies are getting these grants. They call them a loan that can be forgiven. So let's call it a grant. Like a salon, and I have this uh, this article here. A woman owns a salon, Oasis Med Spa and Salon in Woodenville, and she had to lay everybody off. And so all these people are on unemployment. Well, she calls them all back up and says, okay, I, I got the funds from the government. I can start giving you your paycheck again. They all want to stay on unemployment. That's an example. Sometimes, in many people, their morals take the path of least resistance, just like water. And that's where we're at on this thing. Now, we're going to get into the food and health department. 
I got so many of these, I, I, I can't even keep up with them. Uh, eight meatpacking plants closed in the past week. JBS, which is the largest meatpacking organization in the world, is closing plants in the United States and in Brazil. Uh, they pack chicken, turkey, beef, pork. Tyson is closing down a lot of their plants. And you've heard the Ice Age farmer. I've, I've played his, his clips a few times, and he's been saying about how there are many places that our farmers are having to, to uh, euthanize their, their, their birds, their pigs. It's getting into the cattle area now. There's a farmer in, in Minnesota. He comes out. Now, he's a contract farmer. That means he has the barns and he has the equipment to raise chickens. And then uh, after they're raised, the owner comes and takes them all and then butchers them and, and sends them to a meatpacking plant. He got a phone call from the owner and said, uh, kill them all. And he goes, what? He goes, yeah, 61,000 of them. They need to kill them. They can't afford to feed them, and there's no call for the eggs. These companies were mostly commercial. They sold eggs to prisons. They sold them to convalescent homes, schools, restaurants. Okay, so it's more commercial than you or me going to the store for a dozen eggs. This is just one example. There are hundreds of people out there that are having to do the same thing. Another problem with the with the meat uh, beef, chicken, turkey, is that over 100 of the U.S. Department of Agriculture meat inspectors are t- have tested positive for the uh, Wuhan virus. Iowa sent 250 National Guard to help the meat processors in in uh, Iowa. Uh, what the National Guard is going to do is, you know, help with the testing, uh, to do whatever they have to do. This is, this is bad. This is so bad. Now, this, I have talked for the past two months about the shortage of food. It is slowly showing up, and there's some weird phenomena that you're going to see. Right now, you're going to see chicken and beef and pork on sale for the next few weeks. You'll find it. I've found boneless, skinless chicken breaths, $1.28 a pound, bacon, $1.29 a pound. I'm even finding butter, butter at $2 a pound. Of course, five years ago, it was $1 a pound, but you're going to see a lot of stuff on sale. Then you're going to see prices are going to start skyrocketing. Now, I'm seeing that on some of the better cuts of beef, like T-bone steak was $5.99 last month, a pound. It's now $7.99 a pound. So you're going to see, first you're going to see sales, and then you're going to see some skyrocketing prices. Then you're not going to see anything because there's not going to be anything for the stores to put out and sell. There's going to be a meat shortage, and this is globally. This is globally. This is not just in the United States. I have another uh, episode of the uh, Ice Age Farmer that I think you need to listen to. Feels like people are ready to be breathing a sigh of relief right now, sort of waiting for that announcement that we've flattened the curve and that things are going to be better tomorrow. I'm afraid that that's not the case. Maybe we have flattened the curve and that's certainly worth celebrating. But in many cases, the damage has been done, certainly to the economy. And then as I intend to show you tonight, to our food supply, we're getting warnings from Washington State that due to a shortage of CO2, municipal water supplies might even dry up in some of the cities there. So food and water supplies now very much at threat. And actually CO2, of course, used in the production of beer and soda as well. So Americans without their beer, without their meat, this could prove to be a pretty ugly summer. It's setting up that way. And Iowa today actually engaged their National Guard, sending them in to defend meat plants from the virus infection. 
It sounds, this is just a, a ludicrous headline, but this is actually going on because JBS just shut down one of their major pork processing plants, which combined with the Smithfield plant processes about 10% of the pork capacity in the United States. And that's just those two closures. There are others and there are domino effects from those. Plus, as if all that weren't enough, countries around the world are looking at the wheat supply and saying, due to, you know, the U.S. has the smallest planted acres in many years, and countries are starting to, like Russia, have started to stop exporting. So now countries are hoarding wheat around the world. All of these things are relevant to your food security and to your family's well-being. And I want to start off with the carbon dioxide because it's a pretty well-contained story that says Washington emergency board meetings have revealed that today they were noticed due to a force majeure that was declared by their CO2 provider that due to the fact that ethanol plants have been shut down for several weeks now, that CO2, which is an output of those those plants, is not available, that they were reduced down 33% of their expected CO2. And of course, municipal water supplies use CO2 in their scrubbers. They use that to purify the water that they send back out. This is still something that is developed. It's just been announced. A very dynamic situation, and perhaps they'll find somewhere else from whence to to source their CO2. But as of right now, officials in Washington are scrambling to ensure that they can keep water coming to the faucets across cities in Washington. It's also interesting that the emergency board actually explicitly called out that the CO2 shortage would also affect beer production, as if they know that's the only thing pacifying some number of Americans right now. The supply, quote, is rapidly deteriorating. Absent some intervention to keep these facilities running, it will further deteriorate. We're on the verge of something fairly disruptive to American life. It's going to be hard to come by. And of course, I want to note that CO2 is also used as a refrigerant for keeping meat cold for freezers. I've explored this in a few previous reports, and people have been quick to call me out as fear-mongering and these sorts of things. But the the bottom line is that this is a very precariously positioned industry right now where the uh, meatpackers are a central point, a single point of failure. They are the, I've seen them described as the weakest link in our food supply system. And right now they're also the biggest source of coronavirus in the United States, second to New York City. It's, it's a weird situation, but Iowa has indeed sent in the National Guard to defend meat plants from virus. What they mean by that is not exactly with guns, but to do contact tracing and various temperature checks for employees. Quote, at some point, if we don't get this under control, we're going to have to be talking about euthanizing hogs, and we're not that far from it, Reynolds told reporters. That would be devastating not only for the food supply, but for the cost of food going forward. Unfortunately, this has already started happening. I've got report from across the industry, people telling me that all sorts of, of animals are being euthanized right now. The situation in general is just being terribly mismanaged. Tyson, it's now been documented, has been moving sick workers from one plant as it closes down to another plant that's still open, virtually guaranteeing the spread of the virus across their facilities. So we hear, quote, hundreds of Tyson employees in Waterloo, which is still open as of today, but give it a couple days now, have refused to work in recent days, which also slows them down, the plants. According to multiple people, they say the company is not protecting workers from coronavirus spread. According to Tyson's large non-English speaking population, workers are saying employees from closed plants are being moved to Waterloo with no quarantine time in between. And so that's why people are 
refusing to go to work. Workers are not being provided with PPE or hand sanitizers, and it's just a bad situation. Whether you believe that this is just horrific mismanagement, these people are perhaps under a lot of pressure to keep the food supply running, to keep the profits coming in, whatever the case is, or if you think this is a deliberate sabotage of the meat processing plants, guaranteeing that we will be seeing meat shortages and setting the stage for the meatless agenda, for the plant-based, the lab-grown, all of these things that we know are coming. I leave that to you. All I can say here is that it is absolute truth that Tyson has been managing this in a, in a way that, that guarantees their plants are going to domino offline. And we saw, of course, the domino effects literally of after Smithfield closed one plant, other plants that process the downstream results of that first plant were also closing. So it was unrelated to the virus. It was a simply a function of the way that the supply chain functions. Unfortunately, when he says we're close to having to slaughter animals, to having to euthanize animals, like I said, that's already happening. And I'd captured that video of mass chickens being dead chickens being thrown out of that poultry operation. I've heard many reports since then, but now it's actually gone public, so we can share. Company forced to kill, this is just one poultry processor, up to two million chickens. They're not going to reach the market due to staffing shortages. This chicken plant in Delaware is being forced to slaughter two million chickens. It's calling it depopulated, which is somewhat ironic, given that I would argue this is all part of a very large depopulation agenda, a deliberate operation being perpetrated right now. That's happening right now. I did want to mention that these is not a unique situation to the U.S. In fact, Canada is actually hit a little bit harder by the thing, given that they've lost now with Cargill today. Again, today, this is all happening very quickly. One of their main processors in West Canada, bringing the total to 40% of their pork processing capacity offline. That's almost half of the meat processing in Canada shut down right now. So I wanted to break down, because we've talked a lot about these things, I wanted to break down these different protein sources one by one and sort of take a look at where they stand. Poultry, as we just heard, there are mass kills going on right now. The two million that we are reading about publicly reported from a single processor in Delaware, that's just one example. There are many more like this, and the scale is just inconceivable. So poultry very much being affected. We've read previously about the 750,000 eggs that were being just cracked because they didn't want that next generation of laying hens. So this is being done in a way that guarantees production is going to be down for years, for years to come. It takes time to rebuild these these supply chains. This is not just a factory where you hit a button, right? On the fish front, this is also a very fast one to cover. United States imports, this is from Noah's own stats, more than 80% of the seafood that we eat. It stands to reason with the ports closed, with the, the shortage of refrigerated shipping containers, and the shipping collapse all over the world right now, this is just off the table. There's a lot of our seafood that will not be available. Of course, if you're buying local, that's the theme here. If you're buying local from your farmer or your rancher or your fisherman, you're good to go. But if you're going to Safeway or Kroger or Walmart and expecting that these big box stores are going to keep finding their cheap food from the cheapest place and generally the worst practices, those are the ones that are going offline. So all of these things underscore the need to switch to local people using better practices. Um, like I said, these ports, even now in the U.S., are being shut down. And so none of that seafood is coming in. Fortunately, as the BBC is reporting actively right now, many companies are working on fake protein. Fake fish, even, is being created in labs around the world and being highly funded by the world's billionaires who want to control the food supply. But I digress, so let's move on. Looking at pork, we've already mentioned that a huge amount of the processing capacity is offline, upwards of 10%, even just between those two plants, between Smithfield and JBS. Another pork processing plant has 
announced an indefinite shutdown, putting even more pressure on the supply chain. That plant employs 2,000 people and processes 20,000 hogs a day. Those plants are awfully close together. Just want to stress that are closed indefinitely. It takes a little bit of time to close these operations down to get rid of the pigs that they already have in-house and finish the operations. It's also going to take them time to spin back up. And that's even more true of the ranchers who are producing these animals. So processing shutdowns continue to pressure on the supply chain. Quote, we are seeing a 20% or so decline in the average daily rate for being able to process. If we're leveling out there, we might be okay. But if we see more plant closures moving forward as COVID-19 seems to be impacting other plants as well, then, uh, then we'll be in trouble. Quote, we can't live forever with slowing down the chain speed that much. There'll be a real backlog at the processors. And that's what I've been talking about in recent reports where ranchers have hogs that have reached full weight that they can't offload. And that means that they don't have room for the new pigs coming out from the uh, breeding operations. It's a cascading series of failures, which is what the former Secretary of Agriculture described it as, a cascading series of cataclysms. The cattle slaughter was down 8% from the previous week and hog slaughter declining 13%. So there's some real numbers based on these plant closures. And that's before JBS had even closed, right? That happened today. So 13% before the second major closure. And that's only going to rise. And that means, as we're reading, that the pressure on producers is going to get worse and worse. Finishing up on the proteins, beef, we already read that their slaughter rate was down 8% this past week. That means that it's down 90,000 head, 23 head below last year, 20% decrease year over year. So it's a pretty significant impact to beef processors as well. And it's for that reason that we're seeing people tell stories of having to slaughter their calves. And so when you slow beef production, just as with the hogs, the whole pipeline, the whole life cycle is affected. And we've seen just awful stories being reported on Twitter of people leaving their dead animals, hogs and calves at the meat processing plants, even though they're, you know, just on on the steps, even though the doors were closed because they have nowhere else to take those animals. You can only dig a hole so big and bury so many of them. And that's where we are, folks, is we are losing animals and processing capacity at that scale that they don't have the ability to, to deal with it. So again, as if all of that weren't enough, there's also a situation playing out with wheat right now. The United States, as we've reported previously, already has a record low acres of planted wheat right now, and that's being exacerbated by a very wet spring in some cases due to soggy fields. Winter wheat planting is at the lowest point in 100 years. That's a bad place for the United States to be domestically. Around the world, people are starting to shut down their exports. Russia, Kazakhstan, the major producers among them. That's just huge to see that wheat deprived from the world markets that we're expecting to get it, including the United States. With the weed giants starting to hoard their supplies, we've been seeing warnings about this from the United Nations, and now that's playing out. And just to briefly mention, I mean, this is, this is a global phenomenon. In India, a massive agricultural crisis in the making due to the coronavirus shutdown. This was on the heels of some untimely rains and hailstorms that were already causing huge financial losses to the farmers, and so they, it's being called a double whammy. This plays into the war on natural food production on good food production, war on farmers, the war on food around the world. I can't say it enough right now. You need to start growing your own food. What does it all mean? It means that from what I'm hearing, and I wish this weren't true. I hope it's not true. But from all we've just heard and from all we know, what this means is that May and June are going to be really ugly months here in the United States, that we're going to see things play out 
as the beer runs out, if the CO2 shortage materializes, but absolutely as the meat runs out, and as people begin to get an appreciation for just how screwed we are economically, and that this is not a return to normal situation. I think we're going to start to see all of this carry over. Frustrations will mount, and we'll see situations everywhere, like what's already started to play out in parts of South America and in South Africa. Here from the Daily Mail, riots breaking out in Johannesburg over food shortages. The army has been deployed there to restore order as COVID-19 claims over 1,000 lives across the continent. Now notice, they switched in this headline from South uh, South Africa, where the army has been deployed, to 1,000 lives across the continent. Because it's not until you read way down here in the article that in fact, South Africa has not recorded a single case of coronavirus. So that has nothing to do with what's going on. But that didn't stop them from creating a 24-day coronavirus lockdown. Not a single case, but they've locked down the entire country, and that has had the same effects there that it's had everywhere else. Cascading failures, people losing their jobs, not having enough money to buy food, and now violence in the streets and the army being sent in. So they're just on a faster timeline than some of the other places around the world, but this is the way we can expect to see this playing out. As well, we should expect to see the system trying to take more control over the food supply. We know that the EU just very timely, just approved bugs for human consumption, and that is of course completely in line with with the UN IPCC's recommendation that we all start eating insect protein. And uh, Tyson has already positioned themselves as standing ready in a situation like this to be able to start cutting beef with pea protein or insect protein. They've been working on this for years, and so they just happen to be ready with that technology now. So as we look forward to May and June, we already know California is expecting more blackouts this summer and for the next nine, according to PG&E's CEO. So there are a number of challenges that are stacked up against us, the economy is really going to be a, a huge one that will factor into people's frustrations. All right, now we're going to get into the Wuhan virus uh, section. The data has come out from the Centers for Disease Control that, yes, they screwed up the testing kits in the beginning, and uh, they're, they're really sorry about that. But I'm, I got to tell you guys something. The test kits worldwide, and I don't grasp the concept of buying from China the test kits to test for the Chinese virus, but 172 countries are doing that. We're finding all through the world that these test kits seem to be contaminated with the virus, the coronavirus anyway, before you even open them. People, what is this? I have a list of different countries that have been screwed by China. They, they, and I don't understand. what this, this is where the disease came from, yet these people are stupid enough to keep buying equipment from them to fight this disease. More than a dozen countries on four continents have recently disclosed problems with uh, Chinese-made virus test kits and personal protective equipment. Everything's tainted. Everything that comes out of China, and of course I've said this for years, everything that comes out of China is already contaminated. It's up to you whether you want it or not, but no matter what you buy, you damn well better wash it off or throw it in a washing machine before you even think of using it. Anything that comes in in our business, Survival Enterprises, is sprayed down. We get shipments of stuff all the time. We spray them down with colloidal silver and then let them sit for about half an hour. I don't care what it is. But we got these... I have an, an article here that talks about... And it, it gives you time, place, form, and event that talks about exactly where these these uh, test kits have gone and that they have to send them back. We're talking Australia, Austria, Belgium, 
Canada, Czech Republic, Finland, Georgia, India, Ireland, Malaysia, Netherlands, Philippines, Slovakia, Turkey, United Kingdom, United States. I don't understand. Why are these people so stupid as to continue to be buying these test kits from China? Now, I'm going to tell you something, and this is just my viewpoint. You take it as, it, as whatever you want. But with so much contaminants all through the test kits and all through medical supplies throughout the world, I won't do a test on myself because... They've already checked. You know, if you see them doing a swab, right? They do a nasal swab and they tear open this one-time use swab and they pull it out. Well, those swabs have already been tested and have fecal matter on them. Then they have these little tiny finger prick things that you use and, and you put a drop of blood in the test kit. Those finger prick things come from China. And then, so I will not allow anything in any way, shape or form to be used on, in, at my body to do a test unless I use my equipment and do the test myself. You're just going to have to pay attention to what's going on because I don't trust any of them. The, the medical community doesn't give a damn. They're in it for the money, and, and that's, that's real. They're in it for the money. You know, if you go in the hospital and you say, I have a respiratory problem and I can't breathe and I need to be checked out, I have a fever, and they check you out and, and treat you and all this stuff, well, the U.S. government will give the hospital $19,000 for that. If you go in there and you tell them the same exact thing and they throw you on a ventilator, well, that's $40,000. So they're in for the money. Yeah, you get a lot of these people saying, these doctors, dentists, nurses, assistants saying, yeah, I'm here to help people. Okay, why don't you do it for free then? Oh, I can't do that. Well, good. Okay, so that handles it right there. There have been so far seven lawsuits launched against China for billions of dollars for this. We'll see where that goes. And I mentioned this, and it's funny, it just, it just not popped up. They're starting to study uh, fecal matter at the waste d- disposal plants throughout the world, but mostly in the United States, wondering if they could tell if uh, somebody has, has uh, the, the virus or if they have antibodies or, or if they're sick now or what have you, you know, whatever, but studying the poop. And I mentioned that, so does many other people. And I said, listen, what you guys need to do, everybody needs to go out and buy those tablets that you put in the tank of your toilet. And they're different. You don't need to smell good ones. You just get the simple, cheap bleach ones. And then you drop one in your tank. Every time you flush, your toilet is sterilized. Every single time you flush. And that flush water kills anything. And then it runs down your, your drain, your sewer pipe, out to the street. It's doing the work all the way out. So if everybody, if everybody used these bleach tablets in their toilet, you wouldn't have to worry about uh, any kind of problem being passed on because it's not being cleaned out at the waste, waste uh, control plants. It doesn't clean diseases out, except the sun. Now, the sun is a natural wash. It will kill all known viruses. Let's get into the liberal psychosis. All of these protesters and people like you and me, all of these people that are getting pissed off about how this mandatory lockdown is illegal, unconstitutional, and uh, constitutional scholars are discovering it is illegal. Well, MSNBC, another CIA front and communist front, same difference, is they come out and said that uh, overwhelmingly white reopen protesters. Now, they have a name for us now, reopeners. Reopeners are Nazis and racists who want more black and brown people to die. So they're whipping out the race card, which is typical and pretty standard for communism in this country. In fact, worldwide. Did you see the article and ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, and Fox News 
played this little clip of this nurse standing in front of the car in in front of this vehicle that had a Trump flag, American flag with Trump written across it, and it looked like this this nurse was standing up to the bullies, standing up to them. Turned out it was 100% staged. And I have an article and a video that proves it was staged. It actually physically shows it. Now we're going into the category of government threat. If you look at the fact that the public school system is a government threat, a threat from the government anyway, they don't turn out people who are intelligent. They turn out good worker bees, about 90% of them. And most of them that they turn out are going to vote Democrat anyway. Now I'm watching these commercials on TV where they're saying, don't worry about if you don't qualify to go to college because you didn't graduate. Don't worry about taking an ACT or an SAT test. Don't worry about any of those things. Most colleges are going to start dropping entrance exam requirements to get into college. So what is that going to do? That's going to create a whole new series of victims who are being, oh, throttled and threatened and uh, taken advantage of and new school loans. And uh, But I can't read that. I need extra teaching or I need lower qualifications to graduate from college. You can see where this is going. We're going to be turning out some of the stupidest people this country has ever seen. In uh, New York, there was a guy who used a drone, and he, after de Blasio came out and, and uh, said, no, we're not going to be burying anybody in the, in the state parks. We're not going to be burying anybody in the park downtown. No, that's, that's ridiculous. And this guy took a video from a drone of them doing that, of burying people in the park. Well, the New York PD found who he was, and they took his drones. But then, 43 U.S. law enforcement agencies, they were donated, drones were donated to these law enforcement agencies in the United States by, guess who? China. And these are all Wi-Fi, right? So they can fly around and, and you can see on your cell phone what's going on because it goes those all of those drones go on the internet. Here's another example of stupid. So here are stupid people in America allowing this Trojan horse to enter the country and be used in surveillance of the United States. So these agencies in 22 states have accepted these drones manufactured in China. They were given to them by the president of China to aid in this bad time. Oh, de Blasio came out uh, and he said, listen, you know, if you see somebody here uh, in, in, in a city that's not hunkering down, who is not social distancing, uh, here's a, a tip line that you can call or text and tell us who it is and their address. Well, they had to close the line down because, well, uh, there were all kinds of pictures of various body parts uh, being <laughs> texted to him and sent to him, uh, death threats, all you name it, all kinds of weird stuff was being sent. So we had to close that down. Surprise, surprise. Something's happening in North Korea, and nobody knows I have data all over the board. The North Korean leader is sick, dead, not doing good, had a heart operation, and it went south. Nobody knows what's happening in North Korea. But China has moved the military up to the North Korean border. They did. Uh, China sent into North Korea a team of doctors to aid and see what they could do with this. I don't know. This is something you got to pay attention to because this could be a catalyst for some bad crap happening over there. If Kim Jong-un dies, his sister, Kim Yo-yong, is set to take over. 
His sister is one of the most evil people on earth. She's the head of propaganda and agitation. She's the head of propaganda and agitation in North Korea. And she has a list a mile long if she ends up becoming the head of North Korea who are going to die within the first few hours. So we we don't know what's going on there. There's this organization called 4chan. I'm not going to put the link up to them because it's a nasty, devilish piece of the dark web you don't need to go to. But let's just say they dumped a whole bunch of email addresses and passwords from the World Health Organization, National Institute of Health, Wuhan Lab, and the Gates Foundation. You want to find out about all of these people? Well, I'll have the link up there. Well, it's a link to an article on Zero Hedge. If you want to follow it down the rabbit hole, be my guest. But that's going to be posted. Now, something that something else that was posted in the UK. These guys were posting these these signs around. It says uh, "pubs closed, borders open," meaning the invaders are still coming in in the UK, and the UK is still letting them in. We have a, well, our very own criminal up here in North Idaho. A woman in Rathrum said, "The hell with this this uh, order. We're, we're having a yard sale. It's yard sale season, damn it!" So they had a yard sale. Police came out and gave her a misdemeanor ticket, and she said, "Thanks, go away," and kept having it, and she's still having it today. Damn it, I can't go. We already got somebody famous up here. Oh, there's another thing that just got dumped. Now, I'd like somebody out there to do me a favor. Copy and download all of this stuff, if the links are still up. WikiLeaks dumps all of their files. You get that? WikiLeaks dumped all of them. They're all on the internet. Uh, I have the links. I will be posting it. But it's a hell of a lot of work. If anybody out there is tech savvy, knows how to, how to download and copy all of this crap, I'd like a copy of it. That's going to blow a bunch of people away. This is astounding. There's a guy named Harry Vox. He's a muckraker like me, but he's much much better known about it. And he uh, he came out and he's had a few interviews where he proves that this whole virus thing is a bioweapon. Here's a clip he put together of uh, a little bit of intro and an interview that was done with him. In 2010, the deep state had the Rockefeller Foundation script a plan to introduce martial law and a permanent method for total control of the citizenry. In this plan that they disguised as an academic scenario, as they called it, the method they would use to gain complete prison-like control of the entire population was to infect them with a devastating biological pandemic and then, under the guise of protecting us from this threat, they would be free to implement their final solution, a prison state, the prison state that they need to keep their grip on power. As usual, the fascists disguise their crimes as helping us, and as is typical of this new type of fascism, they always make the claim that we the people are begging them to have more and more control over us. As you watch this video, remember that the deep state concocted this scheme in 2010 as a quote-unquote simulation of what is to come. The following is proof that the deep state is behind these viral pandemics. Absolutely positively, pandemics are now the tool of choice for the fascists known as the deep state and the private contractors that they contract these pandemics out to. For the deep state to make an international pandemic isn't even a high-tech operation. It's a no-tech operation. It's easy. A simple vial of Ebola, SARS, MERS, Spanish flu, or coronavirus, or whatever they come up with in their secret bioweapons lab is all they need to bring the world 
into their total control. The only thing you have to remember is if they can do it, they will do it, which means they already have done it. The ruling establishment has a lot of... They, they will stop at nothing to f- complete their toolkit of control. Right? So one of the things that has been missing from the toolkit of total control has been quarantines and curfews. Right. Mm-hmm. So now, welcome to the new world in America where to get on a bus, to go through a subway station, if you think that the p- procedures at the TSA are onerous, right? guess this is coming to a bus depot near you. It's a more invasive way and the ruling class needs this because if the ruling class ever saw wide-scale civil unrest, you'd see an Ebola outbreak in America right away. Okay, so this is, what you see is that Ebola is... Another tool in the toolbox of the ruling class. Of repression. To to keep down Absolutely, positively, 100%. This is a tool. Right. Ebola doesn't just magically start spreading. Mm -hmm. And then we have these doctors that come back here. The white people, of course, live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the two whites who got it or survived. All the black people that get it die. Uh, right? It's very possible that uh, these uh, ng one of one of these NGOs over there is going around uh, with a veil of uh, Ebola or spreading it from a small plane onto villages. The point is is to get hundreds of thousands of people infected with it and uh, create uh, the next phase of control. Now, one of the things I'd like to show to back up my claims here. Uh, here's a document from the. Uh, Rockefeller Foundation. Rockefeller Foundation right there. You can zoom in on that where my finger is. It's called Scenarios for for the Future International Development, the Rockefeller Foundation. Let's take a look at what they're saying here. This is uh, something like a 50, 60 page document. I'd like to, you to go to uh, page 18 if you can look at this up on the internet, but I'll read it off to you. It's called Lockstep. Lockstep. And this is a, a phrase that I used uh, right after 2001 when I saw the entire system of the United States, including the population, were in lockstep step. Uh, so the Congress went along, and yes, it was Osama bin Laden, and the people waved their flag and said, I hate, 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 and everything was in lockstep. Well, in 2010, they published this, Rockefeller Foundation, and here's what they're saying. It's, they call it a scenario. These are scenario narratives, and they speak about it in the past tense. So they put out this scenario. A world of tighter, top-down government control and more authoritarian leadership with limited innovation and growing citizen pushback. Okay, I'll read a a little bit of it. In 2012, the pandemic that the world had been anticipating for years, nobody was anticipating a pandemic, finally hit. Unlike 2009's uh, H1N1, uh, this new influenza strain uh, originating from wild geese, they use wild, they use some scenario, but this is Ebola they're talking about. Even the most pandemic-prepared nations were quickly overwhelmed when the virus streaked around the world, infecting nearly 20% of the global population and killing 8 million in just 7 months, the majority of them healthy young adults. The pandemic also had a deadly effect on economies. You, you, can, see the, you can see the agenda, just naked, raw, naked control agenda written down, and it's anybody's guess how this 
becomes effectuated in real life. So whether this is written specifically as marching orders or whether people take it upon themselves in the intelligence networks to say, okay, well, this has been produced, so this is the plan here. But these narratives have to be written in advance because the intelligence agencies don't know how to do this, these narratives. They need help. So the, these think tanks, they come up with these like Rand Corporation, Rockefeller Foundation. These are think tanks of death. They're not the think tanks, they're not there to find great ways to help people. The pandemic also had a deadly effect on economics. International mobility of both people and goods screeched to a halt. Right? which is what they want. They want a completely isolated world. Right? Debil- debilitating industries like tourism and breaking global so- supply chains. Well, of course they want tourism stopped because they don't, they're not in the tourism business. And they want you at home, in your house, in front of the TV. Then they got you. Because once you watch the TV, they, they own your soul. Even locally... Wait a second, we're on television. I mean commercial television, let's say. Even locally, a normally bustling shops and offices sat empty for months. Okay, so th- I love how they talk about it in the past tense in 2010. Right? The pandemic blanketed the planet, though disproportionate numbers in Africa died, Southeast Asia and Central America, where the virus spread like wildfire. It sounds like the opening uh, monologue of a disaster movie, right? Exactly. Now listen, to here's the good stuff now. But even in developed countries, containment was a challenge. Now here's this one. I love this one. The United States' initial policy of strong discouraging, in quotation marks, strongly discouraging citizens from flying proved deadly in its leniency. So they're saying, oh, so they're saying that... Th- no, keep going. Okay. Read it. Just proved read it. deadly in its leniency. So they should have been tougher, right? Accelerating the spread of the virus, not just within the United States, but across borders. However, a few countries did fare better. China, in particular. The Chinese government's quick imposition and enforcement of mandatory quarantine for all citizens, as well as its instant and near hermetic sealing off of all borders, saved millions of lives, stopping the spread of virus far earlier than in other countries. So the message is here is we have to look towards the Chinese, the oppressive totalitarian Chinese regime as an example of what we we need to be doing here. And of course, the ruling class here loves the Chinese regime because they they have demonstrated to the ruling class the most efficient form of authority capitalism, which is authoritarian capitalism. So we have capitalism, but unfortunately we have this veil, we have this veil of democracy. This is very interesting. This will continue on. Okay. China's government was not the only one that took extreme measures to protect its citizens from risk and exposure. During the pandemic, national leaders around the world flexed their muscles, flexed their authority, and imposed airtight rules and restrictions. You can see the agenda. Okay, from the mandatory wearing of face masks to body temperature checks at the entries to communal spaces like right trains. Yeah, but soon it's going to be like body. You know, I, I, it's it'll not, be at the subway. Yeah, they, they, well, is that what you're saying? We'll be going through this and the oh, stuff to get on the buses absolutely, and the subway. Absolutely, things like positively. that. And and what what this means though is you know, you know don't, don't think about having a you know a cigarette a joint on you know, or you know I mean basically this is a, a dragnet for everything. So if if in order for you. Oh, in other words, just like with stop and frisk, this is ultimate stop and frisk. Uh, this is uh, the this ultimate is stul- cavity stop and face cavity search kind of thing. During the pandemic, national leaders run there, flex their authority. You know, there's some good stuff. Listen to this. 
uh, and even supermarkets, they want uh, body checks at supermarkets. Okay, so basically, what they're saying is they're building a system where every move you make, you can't you get gotta food. go through them. You okay. can't get food. Can't what happens if you go to the farmers market? Right. Here's the good stuff now. I mean, it just keeps getting better. Even after the pandemic faded. This more authoritarian control and oversight of citizens and their activities stuck and even intensified. That's the whole point. So they're going to get rid of. Didn't that happen already with nine uh, eleven? Of course, nine eleven was how many fourteen sure, years ago, sure. and we still have all these uh, draconian. So they're going to put the body cavity USA searches Patriot in. USA Patriot and all that's right. Stuff. So in order to get to a supermarket, you got to have a body cavity search, and then when there's no more evil, evil. Uh, well, you know what? We kind of like this way because we have an in- complete infrastructure, a, con- mm. a control grid. In order to protect themselves from the spread of increasingly global problems, from pandemics and national terrorism, to environmental crisis and rising poverty, leaders around the world took a firmer grip on power. What the hell would rising poverty have anything to do with imposing strict citizen controls with face masks? So they're very sloppy stuff here. At first, the notion of a more controlled world gained wide acceptance and approval. Nobody likes this stuff. Can, so they're can, just saying it. No, I have to. I have to. I have to provide analysis. Have, only because we only have five minutes left. So that's oh my fine. god. Okay. Citizens willingly gave up some of their sovereignty and their privacy to more paternalistic states in exchange for greater safety and stability. I mean, that's just a, a that's just a complete naked contradiction to the famous saying that if you think you're going to give up a little bit of uh, security, I mean, if you want, if you're going to give up your freedom for security, you're going to get neither. That's the long. Thing. And here what they're doing is they're not even ashamed or embarrassed to absolutely say the exact opposite. They're saying, yes, we all want to give up our, our privacy and sovereignty for more stability and security and stability. So you don't get that. When you give it up like that, you get the shaft. Now I have two more documents. We have the National Security Memorandum of December 10th, 1974. This is Henry Kissinger's brainchild. The National Security Memorandum number 200. You can look that up on your internet. Internet. I'll summarize it. He says that there's too many people. We got to get rid of the population. So if, to answer your question, oh, from earlier, yeah, yeah, he says he used the word depopulation, which is different. <laughs> depopulation means killing people that already exist, and it's to get the minerals because we need the minerals. And here's another one: the CDC has a patent on Ebola. They patented it. I guess the main thing to finish off this show is this: uh, that they want to get more control, more curfew. And it's and it's going to be curfews and quarantine. So what I'm saying is that unless the American people start to get some new um, way to uh, revolt, to, uh, a new way to organize, new way to protest, new uh, in, unless they, we can break through the uh, ap- apathy, because that's what we have here, mm-hmm. then it's going to be a slave state here. The ruling class doesn't seem to have too much resistance. They're getting everything on their Christmas uh, shopping list. And they've been wanting quarantines and curfews for a long time. Now they got it. And if you want to live in a world where you're tricked into all this stuff because it's for your safety, right? And if you want to have a probe and make sure you got to check your pockets, make sure you don't have anything incriminating on you before you go out. And, and when you step out of your house, you want some police there to monitor and see what you're doing. If that's the world you want to live in, be apathetic. Don't do anything. You're going to get that world very soon. It's coming your way. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Same. what should people do? What's the hope? You have 30 seconds. To wake up, learn about it, and go fight these bastards in Washington. They're easy to beat. If we can just organize, we can beat them. It's simple. They're weak, and there's so few of them. 
now a pamphlet called Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development from the Rockefeller Foundation was mentioned here. It's hard to find it because they keep deleting it on the internet. The internet is being washed right now. This is real. I'm finding links that existed a week ago don't exist now. I'm finding links that I had five years ago don't exist right now. I'm finding data disappearing whole series of things disappearing off the internet. I have this, I downloaded it, it's a PDF, and I'm going to be posting it on my website so that, you know, I'm sure survivalist.com, you can go there, show notes, today's show, and you can download it yourself and read it. This is 2010 that this came out, and you're going to read that and go, holy crap. Now, Tucker Carlson's another muckraker like uh, like me, so he's uh, got a little clip that he's talking about now, about how, are these lockdowns really working? In many places in this country, Americans cannot go to the park with their children. They can't go to church. They can't have family dinners with their relatives. They can't go to the dentist. They can't get a knee replacement. They can't get married. Tens of millions of them can't afford to do much of anything right now because they're unemployed. But they'd better not complain about it. If they voice their complaints online, they're liable to be censored by the tech companies. If they complain in public, they could be arrested, and a number of them have been. The whims of our political leaders are now unquestioned law. Dissent has been banned, and that ban is relentlessly enforced by the willing stooges in our media who have finally stopped pretending they don't hate you. They definitely do. What country is this? Well, it's a country in a lockdown. We're told we have no choice but to do this, to stop our lives completely. Mass quarantines, they tell us again and again, are the only way to save lives. But that's a lie. They don't know it's true, despite what they claim. There is no scientific record to consult. It's never been done. We're currently living through the largest and most expensive experiment ever conducted in human history. We have spent trillions of dollars and crushed millions of people purely on the guess that a nationwide lockdown would save us from the coronavirus. Has it worked? Was the guess correct? Let's look at the data. That's where we should always begin. It's what our leaders should be consulting daily. Here it is. As of tonight, eight U.S. states have not issued statewide shelter-in-place orders for their citizens. Those states are Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Utah, and Wyoming. The question is, have these states suffered for not locking down? And the answer is no. They haven't, at least not yet. Currently, all eight states are below the national average in coronavirus cases and deaths per capita. That's not to say they've been immune to the virus. They haven't been. But they definitely have not been hit harder than other states. As a matter of social science, those eight states are, it is true, on average smaller and less dense, in some cases much less dense, than the hardest hit states. But you can adjust the numbers. In a recent article, journalist and professor Wilfred Riley did the math on this. He compared states that are locked down to states without lockdowns. He then performed statistical regressions that accounted for population, density, income levels, age, and racial diversity. He put his formulas right up there and challenged people to run the same numbers through those formulas or change them, come to a different conclusion if they could. No one has so far. Here's what he found. He found that a state's lockdown strategy had virtually no effect on how severe its outbreak of the Wuhan coronavirus was. Are you surprised by this? Maybe you shouldn't be. You can see the same trend at work in other countries. Sweden, most famously, has never locked down. Restaurants there have never closed. That country is still suffering from coronavirus, suffering more, in fact, than we are here in the U.S. But the country's epidemic appears to have peaked. And without locking down, Sweden, and this is the key, has fared far better than other European countries that did lock down. That includes Britain, Italy, Spain, Belgium. 
How can this be true? It seems to contravene everything we hear all day long. Lockdowns stop the virus. That's what they tell us, almost always at high volume and with maximum outrage and self-righteousness, daring us to disagree. But in fact, there's not much evidence that it's true. Consider the state of California, which is one of the first states to shut down. In a televised statement, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti bragged that his city was under his absolute personal control. And for that reason, the coronavirus would not spread there. Anyone who disobeyed him would be hunted down. That's literally the phrase Garcetti used. Watch this. This has really been marvelously embraced by 99.9% of people. We see it in the traffic data. We see it in the cell phone data. But we're going to hunt down that last 0.1% and say, you got to get inside, you got to cut it out, and you got to distance. We're going to hunt down people who are outside? They spent years calling Donald Trump a fascist, if only. Garcetti, you may have just heard, brag that he was surveilling people's cars and tracking their cell phone use. But even that wasn't far enough for him. Garcetti also intentionally ruined city parks in Los Angeles just so that nobody could use them without his personal authorization. We saw this week, for instance, at the skate park at Venice Beach, and people were there, so we had to put sand into the skate park to make that unusable for now. When we come out of this, we'll clean that sand out. No modern political leader in this country has ever talked like this ever. And yet suddenly in cities across the nation, so many of them are talking just like that. It's authoritarian. Has this new authoritarianism produced results apart from a surge of power for the politicians exercising it? Well, let's see. Again, to the numbers. A new study by researchers at USC, University of Southern California, tested large groups of people in Los Angeles County for coronavirus antibodies. They found that as of early April, up to 5.6 percent of the entire county had contracted the illness. That means up to 320,000 adults in Los Angeles apparently had already had it. At the time, the official number of infected people was about 8,000. City officials had no clue. They weren't even close. The virus had spread throughout a huge population right in the middle of the most restrictive quarantine in American history. What does that tell you? It tells you the lockdown didn't work. The question is, why exactly did it fail? And we don't know. We can only guess. Maybe people ignored the requirements of it, or maybe full enforcement of it was impossible, despite the fact they were tracking people's cars and cell phones. Or maybe forcing people to stay inside all day isn't actually a good way to contain a virus. Whatever the reason that it failed, it did. Our leaders guessed wrong. They claimed that a lockdown would halt the spread of the virus. It did not do that. Not even close. And they need to admit that. And then we need to change our approach based on the science, not on their whims, on the numbers, on what we've learned. But we're not doing that. Public officials are instead, by and large, ignoring any evidence that indicts their policies or, critically, that might threaten their new and much-loved power. They don't want to know what the facts are. Indeed, some of them are even now, right now, promising even longer lockdowns, ones that extend maybe through the end of the summer, and even tougher punishments for those who disobey them. They're deploying drones to catch people who dare to go outside. Americans, this is insanity. It is definitely, and this cannot be stated emphatically enough, it is definitely not science. This is not science. It has nothing to do with the public's health, much less the broader public interest. This is instead what happens when mediocre people suddenly find themselves with godlike power, deciding who can go outside, when people can get married, which medical procedures you're allowed to have. That's a feeling of omnipotence, and they like that feeling. It fills an empty place inside. They don't want to give it up. They want it to last forever, even as the country dies. But it can't last forever because it's not their country. It's ours. 
People everywhere, mostly in the United States now, are really starting to realize that this is bogus. This is fraud. This is phony. The virus is real. It's killing people. But the people it's killing, 90-something percent of them have two to three other diseases on top of it. So it's, yes, the disease is killing people. Yes, it's more infectious than the normal uh, coronavirus. But what gives any government the right to lock down and destroy the economy of, of this whole country? And how stupid are we to allow it? There are places now throughout the United States, there's mirrors who are starting to uh, realize they've been taken advantage of and lied to. And they're starting to open their cities up. We have some in Idaho are telling the governor, you know what? Go to hell. You have no right to do anything you did. In actuality, I've read the constitutionality of it. I've read the Idaho Constitution. I have read all of the Emergency Powers Act. And he's in violation of the law. Quarantine is like I had when I was a kid. And I told you about this. I I had the plague when I was a kid in San Mateo in California. Me and my mother and my sister had to walk to the corner and get antibiotic shots twice a day. They quarantined the whole city block. They didn't quarantine the state. They quarantined the city block. And the bubonic plague is one hell of a lot more infectious than this thing is. And we were quarantined for a month. The end of the month, they checked us out, said, oh, you're good to go. And that was it. It was not as big a deal. It would have been if they hadn't quarantined me. But now it's getting to the point where people are realizing this is fraud. And there are things that are going to happen, and it's going to be happening soon. And I've told you before, in, in emergency and survival situations, things happen, happen fast. I mean happens fast. It takes weeks, and all of a sudden, the economy is destroyed in the United States. It takes months, and all of a sudden, people are starting to realize, oh, yeah, I guess I can stay home. It's, I like being lazy. I like doing nothing. I like getting the this, this stuff done that I should have been doing in the first place around the house. And I like, a, you know, $600 extra dollars a, a week. That's, that's really good. That's, that's more than I was making before. There's something going to happen. There is a catalyst that's going to occur. I guarantee it, and I can see it within the next two weeks. I don't know what it is, but I can guarantee you it's not going to be fun for a lot of people. Now we're going into the Trump category. Well, Trump was being asked about certain uh, Christian churches, about certain things that was going on. And he says, uh, you know, Democrats go after Christian churches, but they don't tend to go after mosques. Wonders, wonder if social distancing will be enforced for Ramadan which just started. So, of course, the communists in the United States and the Democrats and the Muslims, oh, they all went after him and saying, you're a racist, you're this, you're that. But you know what? Every every of the large cities, Democrat-controlled cities, they have orders out there that you can't go to church. But no orders on Muslims, mainly because Muslims ignore all the orders anyway. And this is being shown worldwide, worldwide. Muslims ignore orders because the the orders that they receive are always from Christians, and Christians are not really uh, alive. They're they're demons, especially if they're white. So that's that's uh, they don't listen to any of the requirements for social distancing. They don't re- listen to any of the requirements for lockdowns. They say the hell with you. And then they wonder why do we have these hot spots of thousands of people sick? We don't understand that. But Trump comes out and and he basically pissed off the Democrats. <laughs> so you Democrats go after all the Christian churches, but you don't go after any of the mosques. Huh? That's not fair. Now, you know how you've seen many videos of our ships in the Strait of Hormuz in the Middle East or other ships. And there's these little tiny fast boats with machine guns mounted on them from Iran. And they're harassing everybody and just threatening everybody and just screwing around. Well, Trump said that's enough. 
next time they try it, uh, destroy them. Literally, any Iranian gunboats that's, that harass U.S. ships or U.S. flagged ships, Trump tells the U.S. Navy, just destroy them, wipe them out. Now, here's something else that occurred this week. On April 24th, it was 105th anniversary of the first genocide in the 20th century. Now, genocides have been performed by basically two groups on earth. One are Muslims and the other are communists. The first genocide in the 20th century was done by Muslims in Turkey against the Armenians. Muslims worldwide, especially in Turkey, still say that this never occurred and it's just uh, is propaganda by the West and it, it wasn't as bad as it seemed. It, you know, they have all these different excuses. But I want to read you the actual history of this. The Armenian Genocide is what it was called was a systematic killing and deportation of Armenians by the Turks of the Ottoman Empire. In 1915, during World War I, leaders of the Turkish government set in motion a plan to expel and massacre Armenians. Armenians have lived in the area of Turkey for 5,000 years or longer, and they are Christian. Armenians are all Christians. By the early 20s, when the massacres and deportations finally ended, About 1.5 million, and they actually say up to 3 million, Armenians were dead, with many more forcibly removed from the country. Today, most historians call this event a genocide. However, the Turkish government still doesn't acknowledge the scope of these events. The roots of the genocide, the Ottoman Empire, the Armenian people have made their home in the Caucasus region of Eurasia for 3,000 plus years. For some of that time, the Kingdom of Armenia was an independent entity. At the beginning of the 4th century, it became the first nation in the world to make Christianity its official religion. Now, from that point on, they were pretty much controlled, conquered, controlled by Muslims. Finally, it was the Ottoman Empire that fit, that ended up controlling them. The Ottoman ruled they were all Muslims. They permitted religious minorities like the Armenians to maintain some autonomy, but they also subjected them to unequal and unjust treatment. They were considered infidels. Infidels is an animal with no soul. So they, the Christians had to pay higher taxes, and they had very few political or legal rights. Now, in spite of these obstacles, the Armenian community thrived under the Ottoman rule. They, they tended to be better educated and wealthier than their Turkish neighbors. Muslims are generally fairly ignorant, and I mean this generally. Out of 10 Muslims, you might have one or two that's actually gone to college, much less graduated high school. The resentment was compounded by suspicions that the Christian Armenians would be more loyal to Christian governments that of the Russians, for example, than they were to the Ottoman Caliphate. These suspicions grew more acute as the Ottoman Empire crumbled. At the end of the 19th century, the despotic Turkish Sultan Ab- uh, Abdul Hamid II, obsessed with loyalty above all and infuriated by the Armenian campaign to win basic civil rights, declared that he would solve the Armenian question once and for all. Uh, now, now, this was in 1890, not 1915. But this is the beginning of it. This would be what's called the first Armenian massacre between 1894 and 1896. In response to large-scale protests by Armenians, Turkish military officials, soldiers, and ordinary men sacked Armenian villages and cities and massacred their citizens. Hundreds of thousands of Armenians were murdered. I have a story that I will be posting on my page for this date. In it is a... a uh, some information, first-hand information. I'll have all of this posted so you guys can look at it yourself. And this shows you what Muslims do. This is not what they can do. This is what they do. Muslims have been murdering and killing Christians now, well, for 1,400 years, but thousands and thousands are dying every year in the Middle East. 
Well, let me continue. In 1914, the Turks entered World War I on the side of Germany and the Nazis. And at the same time, the Muslims in Turkey, uh, the Ottoman, declared a holy war against all Christians, unless you were an ally of them. Military leaders began to argue that the Armenians were traitors. If they thought they could win independence, if the Allies were victorious, this, this argument went, the Armenians would be eager to fight for the enemy. Then they finally, the Turkish government finally decided to push for removal of the Armenians from, the, from all along uh, the war zone in, in uh, Turkey. The genocide started April 24, 1915. The Turkish government arrested and executed several hundred Armenian intellectuals. They just arrested and executed them. Sometimes they didn't even take them out of their house. They just put a bullet in their head when they answered the door. After that, our, our ordinary Armenians were turned out of their homes and sent on death marches through the Mesopotamian desert without food or water. It's a lot of stories from that. Frequently, the marchers were stripped naked and forced to walk under the scorching sun until they dropped dead. People who stopped to rest were shot. At the same time, these young Turks, they, they were called, created a special organization which in turn organized killing squads or butcher battalions to carry out, as one officer put it, the liquidation of the Christian elements. These killing squads were often made up of murderers and other ex-convicts. They drowned people in rivers, threw them off cliffs, crucified them, burned them alive. In short order, the Turkish countryside was littered with Armenian corpses. There is more to this, and I'm not going to read it all, but there is more to this. President Trump, as far as I know, the first U.S. president to actually acknowledge this was genocide, issued a statement on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day, April 24th. I'm going to read that to you. Today we join the global community in memorializing the lives lost during the, during the Meds Yagun, one of the worst mass atrocities of the 20th century. Beginning in 1915, one and a half million Armeni Armenians were deported, massacred, or marched to their deaths in the final years of the Ottoman Empire. On this day of remembrance, we pay respect to those who suffered and lost their lives, while also renewing our commitment to fostering a more humane and peaceful world. Every year on April 24th, we reflect on the strong and enduring ties between the American and Armenian people. We're proud of the founders of the, of the American Committee for Armenian and Syrian Relief, a groundbreaking effort established in 1915 that provided crucial humanitarian support to Armenian refugees, and grateful for the thousands of Americans who contributed or volunteered to help Armenians expelled from their homes. On this day... We bear witness to the strength and resiliency of the Armenian people in the face of tragedy. We are fortunate that so many Armenians have brought their rich culture to our shores and contributed so much to our country, including decorated soldiers, celebrated entertainers, renowned architects, and successful business people. We welcome efforts by the Armenians and Turks to acknowledge and reckon with their painful history. On this day, we believe it is our obligation to remember those who suffered and perished, and reaffirm our commitment to protecting vulnerable religious and ethnic minorities around the world. And right now, religious minority around the world is Christianity. It's being attacked by the evil that crawls this planet. Communism, Muslims, and Democrats. But right now, I have a clip I want to play that gives you a lot more information about this. Let me stress that the Turkish people firmly believe that what happened to the Armenians was not genocide. For nine decades, they've denied this ever happened. It's such an anachronism, it's shocking. We have no reluctance to recognize genocide in Darfur. We have no reluctance to talk about the Cambodian genocide or the Rwandan genocide or the Holocaust. 
Why is it only this genocide? It is incredible that Orphan Pamuk now faces three years in prison for what? For daring to even say that this should be discussed in Turkey today. They are in denial. They're covering their tracks. They marked the deck. This is It's the last major taboo in Turkish politics. The authorities are afraid their own people will find out what happened. Our society, our culture, we do not commit genocide. We will never accept an accusation like that. But for those of you who aren't aware, there was a a genocide that did take place uh, against the Armenian people. Overseas tonight, a critical American ally is up in arms, quite literally, about something that happened yesterday on Capitol Hill. I see a hypocrisy in not recognizing the, the Armenian genocide simply because there is, quote-unquote, an ally who doesn't want us to do so. Now, the White House is warning that Turkey's reaction to what happened in Congress could further destabilize Iraq. Journalist Harand Dink, one of the most prominent voices of Turkey's Armenian community, was killed by a gunman at the entrance to his newspaper's offices. On January the 19th, 2007, Harand Dink, a Turkish-Armenian journalist, was gunned down in broad daylight on the streets of Istanbul. His killer, a 17-year-old Turk. The reason? According to the gunman, Harand Dink had insulted the honor of the Turkish people. To this day, no sentence has ever been passed. In the past few years, cracks have begun to appear in the wall of silence. Pandora's box had been opened in Turkey. Hrant Dink stood up and said, yes, this was genocide. For over 95 years, Turkey has denied that any genocide ever took place. Even today, just to mention it is an offense, for which Dink and many others had been prosecuted many times. But all he wanted was for the Turkish people to face up to their past, to the genocide of over one million Armenians yet a crime which most ordinary Turks know little about. He would say, don't think that they know and they're denying the facts. They're denying something they, they don't know. So it was about telling what happened. He would say, I don't just want those responsible to say that they admit it, but I want the entire population to know that who did it. And I want to know that it will not happen again. Although since Dink's murder, more and more people are starting to question it, the official version of Turkish history is simple. There was no genocide. Even today, it is widely accepted as the truth. Hrant Dink had been fighting a century of official denial. When you say genocide, that's the greatest accusation you could make against a nation. We, the Turkish people, will never accept this. From our point of view, our past is as clean as can be. No one should think we are capable of something like that. An opinion shared by many Turks throughout Europe. Although in recent years, many European parliaments, such as France, Switzerland and Sweden, have acknowledged the genocide against Armenians. Many Turks feel personally insulted by this, as in Germany, they demonstrate against any attempt to recognize the atrocities for what they were, declaring the subject taboo. But the voices of those who demand Turkey face up to its past can no longer be ignored. This process is certainly going to affect Turkey. Turkey will have to radically change its version of history. I want them to know. I want this to be discussed on every Turkish TV channel, in every newspaper, everywhere. Then Turkey will eventually have to admit, yes, it was genocide after all. We acknowledge that fact. But for now, the Turkish government is unyielding. A key trading partner, 
and the country that provides a bridge to the Middle East, it is too strategically important to risk upsetting, and forcing them to acknowledge an event that happened a century ago is not a priority for the leaders of Western nations. Turkey is a key NATO ally. Although when the situation is about an alliance as important as NATO, which we claim is an alliance based on shared values, then we cannot keep silent about the truth. Too little is being done. Too little is being said plainly. People keep quiet about what they know to be true, because basically there is no one in Western Europe who doesn't know that it was a genocide. As Turkey has come under pressure to recognize the genocide, its leaders have used their country's strategic importance to deflect all discussions, threatening to break off diplomatic relations and to cancel arms contracts. Each time the West caves in, and meantime all the Armenian victims and their descendants can do is wait in vain for official acknowledgement of the truth. You tell your story and you're told not only by the Turkish government or by Turkish uh, citizens, but also by the American government and other Western governments that what you lived through didn't really happen quite that way. Imagine what that would feel like. You, you, you survive and you live with those memories. You tell your truth, a truth you were told you would never get to tell, and then you're told that your truth is, is inadequate or is subjective or is overly emotional and is inaccurate. I, I think it's devastating. Each year, on the 24th of April, hundreds of thousands of Armenians from all over the world make a pilgrimage to Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. Here, they mourn the victims at a monument standing not far from the country where their ancestors were citizens and the mass murder took place, Turkey. For it was there on the 24th of April 1915 that the annihilation of their people began. Armenians, the world's oldest Christians, call this genocide Ahet, literally the catastrophe. It is time for people to finally accept the truth, and they have to stand up and do something about it to make sure that Turkey accepts it too. It's a sad feeling. It feels as if someone in your own family died. All those memories, the photos you see of people hung, the women, the children. The genocide must finally be acknowledged. For the three million Armenians in the tiny Republic of Armenia, along with the five million scattered all over the world, the grief on this day is mixed with pain and anger. They cannot understand why even today Turkey will not acknowledge what happened back then. They feel betrayed and abandoned by a world that still accepts the Turkish version of history. People talk about slaughtered Christians, slaughtered Armenians. On what basis are they making these ugly claims? To accuse Turkey without proof that such a massacre took place in 1915, to make such ugly claims against Turkey is absolutely unacceptable. No matter how often it is claimed, we will never accept it, because it never happened. But let them come and present their evidence. Then we will deal with our history if necessary. Deep within the archives of the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Berlin lie stored thousands of reports, letters and notes, once classified papers written and compiled by Turkey's ally, the German Empire. Withheld for decades to protect Turkey, these documents leave no doubt about what really happened. There are reports from American and German diplomats, eyewitness accounts by Swiss, Danish and Swedish doctors, missionaries, teachers, nurses and journalists who lived in Turkey at the beginning of the last century and recorded what they saw. Notes on paper long since yellowed with age, their authors dead for decades. Now, 95 years after the event, their testimony will be heard once more. Actors will lend their voices to those witnesses. For the first time, 
letting them speak again. I had the honor to report to the embassy about one of the most severest measures ever taken by any government and one of the greatest tragedies in all history. These people were torn from their homes almost without warning and started toward the desert. Thousands of children and women as well as men died on these forced journeys, not only from hunger and exposure, but also from the inhuman cruelty of their guard. Can you understand what it means to see all that? and not be able to do a thing, and have to stay alive yourself. They died of starvation by the hundreds, succumbed to typhoid fever by the thousands. Homeless and orphaned children wandered aimlessly everywhere. Long ignored, eyewitness accounts can also be found at diplomatic and military archives in America, France, Denmark, Sweden, and Armenia. Like the reports compiled in Berlin, they too describe the genocide of the Armenians down to the last detail as a road of horrors. These records document the chronology of a crime so great that it is almost beyond human comprehension. It has been no secret that the plan was to destroy the Armenian race as a race, but the methods have been more cold-blooded and barbarous, if not more effective, than I'd first supposed. There were dead bodies in all directions and on every road. The whole country was one vast charnel house, more correctly speaking, slaughterhouse. When one sees men and women 70 or even 80 years old, lame, blind and sick, innocent women and children, and helpless babies sent away to be killed or die, and actually sees them dead or dying all around, it is impossible to conceive of any justification that can be urged for a measure so severe. You cannot accuse the Turkish people as a whole of killing off the Armenians. They didn't want these atrocities. They tolerated them but seldom approved of them. The official reports from German consuls in Asia Minor bear witness to that. According to the reports, quite a number of Turkish officials in the provinces refused to carry out orders from their superiors in the capital. During the 16th century, Constantinople was the capital of the vast Muslim Ottoman Empire, which spanned several continents. The world's oldest Christians, the Armenian people, had, over time, been split between three great empires, Persia, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire, where Armenians lived in six provinces in East Anatolia. By the beginning of the 20th century, two million Armenians live in Turkey. In a Muslim society, Christians are permitted a degree of religious and cultural freedom, but they are also required to pay special taxes and are routinely discriminated against. Despite being granted limited autonomy, they do not have the same rights as Muslims and are treated as second-class citizens. The Armenians complain about their lowly status and in vain demand political and social equality. Although many are tradesmen, farmers and craftsmen, in the towns, a prosperous Armenian middle class emerges. Some of these people were from wealthy and refined circles. Some were accustomed to luxury and ease. There were clergymen, merchants, bankers, lawyers, mechanics, tailors and men from every walk of life. But despite repeated promises of equality, over the years, tens of thousands of Armenians fell victim to pogroms, state-supported violence designed to keep them in their place. In 1895, 200,000 had been killed protesting against high taxes and demanding equal rights. Then, in 1908, revolution erupts in Turkey. Officers and liberals in exile, called Young Turks by Europeans, seize power, again promising freedom and equality for all minorities. In reality, they had a very different agenda. 
fact. With the success of the Young Turks in 1908, a new idea came to the predatory minority that ruled and robbed Turkey. It was Turkey for the Turks. It was not the result of religious fanaticism, although it brought into play the fanatical passions of the masses. But on the part of the government, it was largely for the spoils and the power. The new party calls itself the Committee of Union and Progress. The old sultan is overthrown and his brother installed as the head of what is now a constitutional monarchy. The young Turks plan the creation of a new racially pure empire, claiming they want to free the Muslim world from the dominance of the infidel. The once mighty Ottoman Empire is severely weakened by the loss of Christian territories in the Balkan War of 1912, a humiliation they also blame on Christians living in their own country. Power lies with the triumvirate of three high-ranking officials called Pasha in Turkish. Enver Pasha as war minister, Jamal Pasha as minister of the navy, and last but not least, the all-powerful minister of the interior, later to become head of government, Talat Pasha. He came from a very humble background. He began as a postman and mail courier on the route to Adrianople. Then he worked as a telegraph assistant and in other departments at the post office. He had astonishing energy and intelligence. Even so, his great intellectual capabilities didn't stop him from harboring the most narrow-minded, chauvinistic delusions. It was as if he was poisoned with a kind of racist fanaticism. My impression then and now, Talat Pasha was the absolute dictator of Turkey. I had two interviews with him. Talat Pasha looked strong and powerful. He was like a great American political boss, only if he would have been an American boss, he would be the king of bosses. He was a born master executive. After seeing the leading men of the central powers, I should say that Talat Pasha was the strongest man between Berlin and hell. 1914 and the First World War. The Russians advance from the east. To the west, England starts an offensive on the Dardanelles Strait. Turkey feels threatened by a Christian Europe, except for the German Empire. Turkey now fights at its side. The German, the Turk and the devil made a triple alliance. At a state reception in Constantinople, the German Kaiser greets Turkish officials. To his right stands War Minister Enver Pasha. In the race for influence in the Middle East, Germany seeks an alliance with the Ottoman Empire. They offer to modernize the Turkish army and help restore the country to its former glory. The fate of Armenians is not an issue for the Germans. Economic and military interests do not permit any conflict with their new ally. First of all, Germany's conduct was extremely cowardly. We had the Turkish government in our hands, from a military, a financial, and even a political point of view. If we had only wanted to, we could have insisted on observance of the most basic principles of humanity. Enver Pasha, and to a greater extent Talat Pasha, the Minister of the Interior, and actual dictator of Turkey, didn't really have any other choice but to obey the terms Germany set. They would have obeyed any directive from Germany regarding the Armenian issue. The Ottoman government felt that with Germany as its ally, it need have no fear of any future retaliations for its plan of complete extermination, as it was convinced that Germany would win the war and would shield Turkey from the vengeance of the Western powers and of Russia. And so the crime was worked out systematically. In the winter of 1914, the Russian army advances into the Turkish-Armenian districts. Soldiers of Armenian origin fight on both sides. Enver Pasha himself is in command of the counter-offensive in the Caucasus region. But his campaign ends in crushing defeat. 90,000 Turkish soldiers die within a few weeks. The Young Turks government places the blame on a Russian-Armenian conspiracy on fraternization among Christians. 
It was her only explanation for the fiasco and an opportunity to denounce all Armenians as enemies. There is no doubt that they used the war for this because the hostile great powers no longer had any influence on Turkish soil. And in any case, apart from America, they were fully occupied with the war. So there was no time, no one found the time, to concern themselves with the Armenian issue. The young Turks spread rumors that their Armenian soldiers had defected to the Russian side, a fabrication built on treason with tragic consequences. Thousands of Armenian soldiers are arrested, tortured and killed as a direct result. Only by using tricks such as that were they able to carry out their systematic extermination of the Armenian people. The Turkish government skillfully manipulated public opinion worldwide and then discovered... No, they arranged local conspiracies. The governor of the city of Van, a brother-in-law of Enver Pasha, prepared an attack on the town's Armenian district. The Armenians barricaded themselves in their neighborhoods to protect their families against the impending massacre. They had no connection with Russia whatsoever. For four weeks they held out against Turkish troops who laid siege to them and fired upon them. Under cover of the turmoil of the fighting between Turkey and Russia, Turkish troops attacked the Armenian population in Van, supposedly to crush an uprising there. The Armenians put up a bitter resistance. Many thousands died. The fighting only stops when Russian troops force the Turks to retreat. As the Russians march into Van, for the Turks, this is yet more proof of a Russian-Armenian conspiracy. It was used as a pretext to slaughter, for every guilty one, 10,000 innocent people, to assault women and children in the most brutal fashion. While Turkey's ally Germany deemed an objection to be inappropriate. It begins with expulsions, supposedly to secure the border with Russia. The authorities claim the Armenians would be settled in Syria, then a part of the Ottoman Empire, a lie. The first Armenian families are sent off on a march to certain death. But the Turkish government intended to get rid of all Armenians. Of course, they could hardly use the pretext of a wartime evacuation for the entire population. Those people lived hundreds of miles away from the Eastern Front and the Dardanelles. So, a different reason had to be found. Suddenly, and miraculously, the government discovered a universal conspiracy amongst Armenians throughout the empire. The authorities whip up passions amongst the Turks. They claim the only way to avoid military defeat is to eliminate the Armenian threat throughout the country. A new Deportation Act, carefully refraining from naming the Armenians explicitly, retrospectively justifies the measures taken so far and instructs the army to, as they claim, resettle the populations of any towns and villages suspected of committing acts of treason or espionage. Once holy war was declared, we could all see where it would lead. They made inflammatory speeches stating, since we're at war with Christians, we need to wipe them out in this country first. Besides, the Turks expected the Russian troops would advance at least as far as Mush, but, as they put it, before that happens, we'll slaughter the Armenians first. The arrests in Constantinople began on the 24th and 25th of April. 850 people, Orthodox Christians, Protestants and Catholics were deported. Among them were 10 bishops, 40 doctors and 10 lawyers, also many middle or working class. There were very few Turks with whom you could speak frankly about the Armenian issue. Even otherwise quite sophisticated and cultured people would fly into a rage. They saw all Armenians as the same 
tarred with the same brush, constantly repeating, the Armenians must be wiped out, they're all traitors. And what did the Turkish government have to say about this? I quote, the Ottoman government extends its benevolent protection to all honest and peace-loving Christians living in Turkey. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that statement, and I still can't find words to describe the utter hypocrisy of it. The Turkish government is responsible for everything that has happened. It's no use their denying it. They were the ones who deliberately drove the Armenians into this chaos. The police fell upon them just as the eruption of Vesuvius fell upon Pompeii. Women were taken from the wash tubs. Children were snatched out of bed. The bread was left half-baked in the oven. The family meal was abandoned, partly eaten. Children were taken from the schoolroom, leaving their books open at the daily task. And the men were forced to abandon their plows in the fields and their cattle on the mountainside. These people were torn from their homes, almost without warning. The Armenian men who were arrested were put in stocks. Their feet were shod with nails like horses. Beards, eyelashes, fingernails, and teeth were torn out. They were strung up by the feet, and similar things. Of course many of them died, but missionaries were able to treat some, which is how we got to see these injuries. For several days, there were rumors of this, and it seemed incredible. On Saturday, June 28, 1915, it was publicly announced that all Armenians were to leave after five days. Full meaning of such an order can scarcely be imagined by those who are not familiar with the particular conditions of this isolated region. A massacre, however horrible the word may sound, would have been humane in comparison with it. In a massacre, many escape, but a wholesale deportation of this kind in this country meant a lingering and perhaps even more dreadful death for nearly everyone. When the town crier announced the deportation of the Armenians, Turkish police came and ordered, men on this side, women on the other. They herded us like sheep. They drove us out of our houses and off our land. Many Muslims, Turks and Arabs, shook their heads in disapproval, unable to hide their tears. They couldn't believe that their own government could have ordered these atrocities. All the Armenian houses in Trebizond had been emptied and the people sent off. There was no inquiry as to who were guilty or innocent of any movement against the government. If a person was an Armenian, that was sufficient reason for being treated as a criminal and deported. On the 24th of May 1915, England, France and Russia declare the events in the Ottoman Empire a crime against humanity. The first time this term had ever been used. At this point, America is still neutral and therefore not at war with Turkey. Their ambassador meets with Talat Pasha to protest against his government's brutal actions. After the exchanging of compliments, we settled down to the business in hand. I've asked you to come today, began Talat Pasha, so that I can explain our position on the whole Armenian subject. We base our objections to the Armenians on three distinct grounds. In the first place, they have enriched themselves at the expense of the Turks. In the second place, they are determined to domineer over us and to establish a separate state. In the third place, they have openly encouraged our enemies. They have assisted the Russians in the Caucasus, and our failure there is largely explained by their actions. We have therefore come to the irrevocable decision that we shall make them powerless before this war is ended. This was no less than the deportation of the entire Armenian population. Not only from this province, but I understood from all six provinces comprising Armenia. An undertaking greater probably than anything of the kind in all history. 
With a map of Anatolia in his hand, one of Talat Pasha's closest aides confirmed to me the Turkish government had decided to step up the deportation of the Armenians even further. Now Armenians in the provinces of Yannick, Trabzon, Zivas and Mamoretul Aziz would also be deported to Mesopotamia. This could no longer be justified on any military grounds, as Talat Pasha himself confirmed to me its purpose was to wipe out the Armenians. Suppose a few Armenians did betray you, I said to Talat Pasha. Is that a reason for destroying a whole race? Is that an excuse for making innocent women and children suffer? Those things are inevitable, he replied. The weeping and wailing of the women and children was most heartrending. The German consul told me that he did not believe the Armenians would be permitted to return to Trebizond even after the end of the war. It wasn't easy for the young Turks who decided to deport and exterminate the Armenians to annihilate a people in the millions. The deportations went on for a whole year. It is impossible for me to give any adequate idea of the panic in this locality that has resulted from the announcement of this order of expulsion. Everyone who was obliged to leave was trying to get together a little money to take on the journey. The Turks, of course, were taking advantage of this situation to get things at practically nothing. Robbery and looting were never undertaken in a more wholesale manner. Turkish men and Turkish women were entering the houses of all the Armenians and taking things at almost any price. The scene reminded me of vultures swooping down on their prey. All felt that they were going to certain death, and they certainly had good reason to feel that way. The furniture, bedding, and everything of value was being stored in large buildings about the city. There was no attempt at classification, and the idea of keeping the property in bales under the protection of the government to be returned to the owners on their return was simply ridiculous. The goods were piled in without any attempt at labeling or systematic storage. As a matter of fact, the Turks never had the slightest idea of settling the Armenians in this new country. They knew that the great majority would never reach their destination destination, and that those who did would die of thirst and starvation. The real purpose of the deportation was robbery and destruction. Constantinople ensured the destruction of the Armenians by ordering regional governors, mayors and local officials to annihilate. Those civil servants who disobeyed were dismissed. Anyone else who expressed disapproval, officials, the military, the public, was terrorized. Not just one, but a number of officials are reported to have been executed because they weren't ruthless enough with the Armenians in their districts. We asked permission for two or three of the missionaries to go with them. This was refused. We were allowed to buy things from them, but not to store things. They were told they were to go to Urfa. Then we began to buy their things and give money to the poor, making knapsacks and filling them with bread and handing them out. At first we wept till it seemed that for the rest of our lives we could never do anything again but weep. Then the true horror of it began to weigh down on us, and then we found it impossible to weep. The crime that was committed here was so immense that even during the war, its echo was heard everywhere, except in Germany. Berlin knows perfectly well what has been going on, but neither Jamal Pasha nor any other member of the government see any reason to justify their actions to their German ally. And Germany tacitly accepts their allies' crimes, all in the national interest. We Germans, soldiers and civilians alike, were outraged. It was incomprehensible. Instead of disassociating itself from the Turks through its silence, the German government has turned us into accomplices. 
It is with good reason that both our enemies and neutral nations have accused us of condoning these crimes by remaining silent. What the Turks did was actually our work. It was our officers, our guns, our money. Without our help, the puffed-up frog would have collapsed in a heap. We didn't need to be so gentle with them. To succeed in the Armenian issue, all we had to do was to instill in the Turkish government a fear of the consequences. Our admonishments achieved nothing. It just annoyed them. I warned at the time, if for military reasons we can't be firm with them, then we'll have no other option than to look on as our ally continues to massacre. In my opinion, reprimanding an ally in public during an ongoing war, as proposed by Ambassador Metternich, would have been absolutely unprecedented. Our sole objective was to keep Turkey on our side until the end of the war, regardless of whether Armenians perish or not. It was clear to me that we would need the Turks if the war carried on much longer. I didn't understand how Metternich could even make such a suggestion. We walked for 110 days, almost without a break. The old and the sick, who could walk no more, were abandoned on the side of the road or killed by the police. They drove us onwards. We were hungry. They didn't even let us have anything to drink. At first, the Armenians from eastern Anatolia are marched to the city of Orfa. Armenians from Constantinople and western Turkey are sent towards Aleppo. Then from these two cities they are forced to walk into the Syrian desert near Diyazor or out into the steppes of Mesopotamia. In reality, the alleged resettlement is a death march to nowhere. The state of the deported people defied description. They went out in droves and ate grass from the fields. If they came across a dead camel or some other beast, they fell upon it and fought over it as if it were a treasure. The Turkish government deliberately set about the destruction of as much of the Armenian population as possible, using methods borrowed from antiquity. Such methods, however, did not become a government that wished to be allied with Germany. The work was not just done by bands of Kurds, but has for the most part been that of the police who accompanied the people from here, or by companies of armed convicts who have been released from prison for the sole purpose of murdering the Armenian exiles. Kurds and bandits attacked us, robbed everything we had, and kidnapped girls and young women. I remember that my mother-in-law was pregnant. They murdered her. They rammed a sword into her belly, pulled the baby out, and then began to laugh because it was a boy. They threw him down on the ground. I'll never get those images out of my head. The route leads the deportees across steppes and mountains, alongside the banks of the river Euphrates. Few German soldiers venture to rescue Armenians from their inevitable fate. Faced with their allies' absurd explanations, they're powerless to act. When the Turks killed the men on the marches, they used the excuse that they had to protect themselves against rebellions. When women and children were raped and kidnapped, then the Turks used the excuse that they didn't have a grip on the Kurds and the police. When they let the deportees starve, then they used the excuse that the difficulties in supplying food on the march were so great that they were unable to overcome them. My mother and brother were very sick. We simply left them under a tree along the way. It didn't matter anymore. Sooner or later they would have died anyway. Then a different kind of chaos began. They took the young girls. Many of them fled and tried to hide. Eventually I just collapsed somewhere all alone. I saw many girls this had happened to, who then drowned themselves in the river Euphrates. I didn't do that. By then the sun was setting and I was still lying there on the ground. But I thought to myself, soon it will be night and then wolves will come and tear me apart. So I got back up on my feet again and marched on. 
Out there, the men were killed, the girls carried away, and the women robbed and left. We didn't know what was still to come. The persecution of Armenians in the eastern provinces entered its final phase in July 1916. Nothing could deter the Turkish government from its program. Neither our own petitions, nor appeals from the American embassy and the papal delegate. Not even threats from the Triple Entente powers, and least of all any consideration for public opinion in the West. There are cattle cars on the Baghdad railway for transporting goats and sheep. They are split into two decks so that animals can be loaded top and bottom. The deportees were loaded into these cars like animals. It was impossible to stand up. They could only kind of crouch and hardly even that because the cars were so overloaded. Men, women, children, the healthy and the sick were bundled in together and transported for days. The railway from Constantinople to Baghdad had been built under German planning and supervision for around 100,000 Armenians from the western Anatolian region near Bursa and Izmet. The Baghdad railway becomes a journey to certain death. They have to pay for their tickets. Every day, thousands were transported by train. The sick and dying were loaded on with the rest. When they died, they were simply offloaded at the next station. Bodies were even found thrown down the railway embankments between the stations. Even more horrifying accounts were given by railway engineers after they returned home. Near Tel Abiyad and Razuline, they found piles of defiled, naked women's bodies lying on the railway embankment. Many had clubs forced into their anuses. The director of operations for the Baghdad Railway, a native Swiss, told me he'd seen many things in his life, things that had hardened him, but he never imagined something like this was possible. You can see why General Pasha had issued a strict ban on photographing the deportees. The ban made the photographing of Armenians as prohibited as taking unauthorized photographs in a battle zone. Nevertheless, some German soldiers did manage to capture the Armenians' plight on film and smuggled the photos out of the country. Their pictures are a precise record and shocking proof of the first systematic genocide of the 20th century. The worst thing was to see the horde of orphan children grow day by day. On the perimeter of a tent town, hollows had been dug in the ground for them, covered by old rags. They sat beneath them, head to head, boys and girls of all ages, neglected like animals, starved without food, without bread, huddled together, shivering in the cold of the night, and no one to offer them even the most meager help or comfort. Eyes sunken from their suffering, a look of bitter reproach against the world on their faces. The German consul from Mosul, Mr. Holstein, reported that on some segments of the route from Mosul to Aleppo, he had seen so many chopped off children's hands that one could have paved the road with them. Numerous reports from the German consulates in Aleppo and Mosul document far worse examples than the few I offer here. The last refuge for the Armenians are the children's homes, hospitals and orphanages run by Western missionaries. Doctors and nurses battle to save at least the children. They soon realize that rescuing them is the only way for the Armenian race to survive. At this point, mention must be made of the actions taken by the Turkish government against the orphanages, hospitals and schools, maintained by German and American associations for the benefit of the Armenian people. Every day, the authorities threatened the few institutions that had not yet been closed down with the deportation of their Armenian staff, school children and orphans, as well as other measures. The Turkish government's intentions were revealed by their systematic blocking of any form of relief 
aid offered by missions, nuns and Europeans living in the country. An offer made by the American government to take deportees to the USA aboard American ships at America's expense was flatly rejected. At that time, with just a brief curt order, the Turkish government took nearly a thousand children from my care. The last I saw of them was when they were carried off by that special train. And with that, a veil of darkness was drawn over them and me. Of those who had lived in our home, almost all have been beaten or starved to death or have disappeared. Only six survived, three finding their way back. As for the others, I have received very little news. Crippled Mariam Badcha starved to death. Blind little Livon too. Katun, also blind, is said to have been drowned in Lake Gulchik. Lake Gulchik is a mountain lake near Mezari in which thousands of Armenians were drowned. I spoke forcefully to both Enver Pasha and Jamal Pasha about the Armenian atrocity. But citing wartime necessities, they said that insurgents must be punished, ignoring the fact that hundreds of thousands of women, children and old people were being killed. The Turkish government did damage both to us as their ally and to themselves. The only route they had for a campaign against Egypt was blocked by tens of thousands of deportees and contaminated with disease. Yet at any moment, they could have needed the road for troop movements. In the midst of the First World War, strategic military considerations vital to the war effort are ignored by the Turkish government again and again. The deportation is its top priority. Thousands are killed along the way. Those who survive the journey eventually reach the town of Urfa, where they are herded together in a camp. There, they await their fate. For hundreds of thousands, Orfa had become the transit point on their way to the steppes of Mesopotamia. Conditions aboard the trains grew sadder and ever more wretched. There were no more men among the deportees. The trains contained only women and children between the ages of 4 and 12. They had numbered thousands when they set off together, but only small groups made it to Orfa. Once when I appeared at the deportees' camp with bread, the women called out to me. What is the use of bread? Why bring us bread? The only thing that awaits us is death. Bring us poison so that we can die here. Please don't let us be taken away. You know what awaits us when we reach the steps and the mothers with their babies. Their breasts had long since gone dry. No other food existed. Few mothers found the courage to drown their children in the river to release them from their suffering. Instead, they were laid in the yard, row upon row. There they cried for as long as they could. When the crying stopped, they gasped for air a few more times until death released them. It was an avenue of death that stretched from Orpha's walls far, far out onto the scorched yellow plains. And that avenue was well planted, but it wasn't shaded by lush green trees. Corpses lined the path. Bodies in every stage of decomposition. Some had died right outside the city gates. Beaten from their sick beds by blows from truncheons, they managed to drag themselves on for a few hundred meters. Then they collapsed, and no torture in the world could have made them get back up again. They gasped their last breath and were freed from their suffering. It was almost impossible to bear. We came across several groups of Armenian women and children. It was a dreadful sight. The policemen who accompanied them told us frankly what they did to these poor people en route. When we asked where are they headed, they said, if no one else gets them, or they don't die, we'll just have to kill them ourselves. For those who don't die of hunger or thirst and aren't beaten to death during one of the countless attacks, their journey to death finally ends on the steppes of Mesopotamia or in the Syrian desert near Deir In Deir a small town on the Euphrates, a large concentration camp had been set up for Armenians from all over Turkey. When I was there, there were only around 60,000 people left, mostly walking skeletons. 
famine had distorted their features. Their faces looked barely human. At the entrance to the camp I visited at that time, there was a pile of unburied bodies right next to people's tents. Everyone was suffering from severe diarrhea. The filth in and around the tents was beyond description. The Turkish burial squads worked from morning till night, but they still couldn't cope with all the work. An elderly policeman said that he'd been here for 25 days. He believed the Armenians had got their just desserts because some had worked against the government. Still, he said it would be better if they were just shot, not slowly tortured to death. He could stand it no more and would surely lose his mind if he had to witness this boundless misery any longer. I once found a stack of human skeletons piled on top of each other in a gorge. White skulls still covered with hair, a pelvis, a child's rib delicately curved like a clasp. At that moment I was overwhelmed by a dull despair that brought tears to my eyes, as if I would have to extinguish all hope, all the seeds of love that had ever bound me to life. Similar tragedies were reported from all over Turkey. Wherever desert sands border an inhabited region, hundreds of thousands of dead bodies. I'll read from the notes I made back then. One o'clock in the afternoon, a young woman lies on the left side of the road, naked except for brown socks. She lies on her stomach, head buried in her crossed arms. Half past one, to my right, an old man with a white beard in a ditch, naked, lying on his back. Two steps beyond, a boy, naked, on his stomach, left buttock torn away. Two o'clock, five fresh graves. To my right, a man with exposed lower body and bloodied genitals. 3.45, a dying boy, a blooded skeleton, of about a leg, ten-year-old girl, about three long, blonde hair, my left, twenty-two fresh skulls, graves, five hundred tents, a man, body of a body curve, a woman clutching a baby, eyes in the middle of the road, both dead, arms and legs, spread, One day, Talat Pasha made what was perhaps the most astonishing request I had ever heard. The New York Life Insurance Company and the Equitable Life of New York had for years done considerable business among the Armenians. I wish, Talat Pasha then said, that you would get the American Life Insurance Companies to send us a complete list of their Armenian policyholders. They are practically all dead now and have left no heirs to collect the money. It, of course, all should go to the state. The government is the beneficiary now. Will you do so? This was almost too much, and I lost my temper. You will get no such list from me, I said, and I got up and left him. In 1918, victorious Allied forces march into Constantinople. Turkey, along with Germany, has lost the war. The young Turks are removed from power, and the parliament they had suppressed charges those responsible for the genocide. In 1919, Turkish courts sentenced the main perpetrators to death in absentia. Enver Pasha, Jamal Pasha, and head of government Talat Pasha with Germany's assistance, had been able to escape on a German warship. Talat Pasha flees to Berlin, where under an assumed name, he and his wife lead a secluded but comfortable life. As for the crimes committed by their loyal ally, Germany remains silent. But on the 15th of March, 1921, Talat Pasha is shot dead in the middle of Berlin. The assassin is caught at once. He states that although he did kill a man, he is not a murderer. The assassination makes headlines around the world, but it would be decades before the perpetrator is revealed as a member of an Armenian group seeking revenge. The deed brought Germany's attention to the genocide for the first time. A single shot fired by the young assassin, Solomon Talirian. The pistol shot fired by Talirian, an unknown Armenian, 
brilliant student, and the trial that followed once again drew the eyes of the world, and for the first time those of the German people too, to the bloodiest chapter of the war. The truth was out, the systematic annihilation of the Armenian people by the young Turks. The trial takes place at the Tiergarten Municipal Court in Berlin. German diplomats are prohibited from testifying. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs doesn't want the trial to focus on the genocide or Germany's role in the atrocities. After just three days, Talerian is acquitted. The impact of the events discussed during Talerian's trial was so devastating that despite the obviously violent killing, the jury found him not guilty. Despite all the efforts to keep this trial non-political, the verdict reverberated around the world and obtained historical significance. Without saying so directly, the jury had acknowledged that the destruction of an entire people could not go unpunished. As a young student in Poland, Rafael Lemkin had been following the trial. It would lead him to draw up the United Nations Convention on Genocide. Tellurian had appointed himself as the executioner of the conscience of mankind. Yet can anybody appoint himself to carry out justice? At this moment, the murder perpetrated upon an innocent people held a greater significance for me. I still had no definitive answers, but the certain feeling that the world had to promulgate a law against this form of racially or religiously motivated murder. Sovereignty cannot be misunderstood as the right to kill millions of innocent human beings. It would take another 30 years before Lemkin's ideas become reality. But in 1920, at the peace conference in France, the Armenians are promised that those responsible for the genocide would face international condemnation. But three years later, Kemal Ataturk, the new head of the Turkish government, is once again seen as a key ally of the West. Strategic issues take precedence. Ataturk demands a high price for this new alliance. His opposition to any prosecutions or an independent Armenian state in Anatolia is conceded. In addition, he refuses to allow the surviving Armenians to return to their old homes. Attempts to get the new Turkish government to allow the refugees to return to their Anatolian homeland were futile. The Turks hid behind the pretext that the refugees' return constituted a danger to the Turkish army. The survivors of the genocide are a few women, but above all, children. They are kept either as house slaves or forced into harems. Defenseless, they are subjected to repeated abuse. Tirelessly, missionaries attempt to save those they could. It was enough to make you lose all hope. How are these remnants of the Armenian people supposed to cope? And the many, many fatherless children, they simply overwhelmed them. We were sick with worry for them. After the war, my wife and I were able to bring 8,000 children to Lebanon. From Haput, 5,000 children had to be shipped out, so each group had to be as large as possible. During the three months of the transports, I twice managed to send around 700 children on their way at a time. Those were great days. How the children's faces beamed as they set off on their journey. Surely the Israelites couldn't have been happier when they left Egypt. It is thanks to people like Jakob Künzler that up to half a million Armenians survived the Young Turks' genocide. The survivors, all now over 100 years old, find new homes in places such as Lebanon, France and the USA or the Caucasus, where a new, tiny Armenian Republic is founded. In Turkey itself, only about 60,000 Armenians remain, and of those, only a few acknowledge their origins. Rand Dink 
the murdered journalist had tried, with little success, to start a long overdue debate. It cost him his life. But his death sparked a wave of protest. 200,000 Turks took to the streets in one of the biggest demonstrations ever seen in Turkey, in solidarity with Randink, the Armenians, and the longing for truth. It was very unusual that in this country, having denied many things in the past, that such a campaign could take place. I believe that Turkey, because of its record, because of its history, should be ready, should be bold enough to say, I'm sorry for what has happened. Nobody could imagine that in Turkey, that many people would go on the streets and would say, we're all hunting, we're all Armenians. There is this public who are really raising their voice and the state has to hear it at some point, and I think they're hearing it. I want all of you to never forget, this is what a totalitarian government does to their opposition, or their perceived opposition. Once a government takes full control of you, any of you that are seemed to be a threat to them, any of you that are perceived to be a threat, they will kill you. Every country that's had a genocide in it, one of the most famous statements ever made by all of their citizens is, well, that'll never happen in my country. What else will never happen in your country? The government would never come in and order everyone to stop working, would they? All right, if you need anything that we have at Survival Enterprises, go to SE1, Samuel Edwards, the numeral 1.us, SE1.us, or give us a call at 800-753-1981. That's 800-753-1981. Our phones are open seven days a week from 9 in the morning to 8 at night. Next week, though, I'll have something important to teach you about. Oh, I don't know, maybe battle weapons, firearms. This is the Armchair Survivalist. Keep your nose in the air, your ear to the ground. See, I say these things and you're going, yeah, right. Meanwhile, you're at home, locked down, no income, and and people are going, yeah, he's just a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, yeah, that stuff will never happen while you sit there while it's happening.